0: Today's special guest speaker is missionary Jackie Pullinger. Her sermon is entitled, Finding the Grace to Die, Part 2.
1: Last night I mentioned a little bit about the some of the slaves that are in the world. You know, I visited some some women in Bombay last year, and we learned that... The young girls come down from one of the northern provinces to Bombay, and there are about 60,000 in just a few blocks of these young girls, many of whom look old, and they sleep on three-tiered bunks. And when they have babies, as they will, the babies are put under the bottom bank while the girls entertain their customers. And of course, all the girls have AIDS. And of course, all their babies have AIDS. And actually, their parents know where they're going when they leave their northern province because their parents have sent them. It's what they do in Thailand, too. They've sent them so a girl takes a walk from her village to the town and her parents know where she's going and what she's going to do in the town. And when the girl who may be 9 or may be 12 or may be 14, when she's working as a prostitute, the village is very pleased because you see they're a destitute village and that girl may feed the village. And she has no way out, because if she stops, where can she live and who will have her? Her village is not pleased because she supports the village. And there is today, for women, the greatest number in prostitution, slavery, than there ever have been in history. And now we've heard about the little boys. We have some friends in Sri Lanka. He tell us that this is the, the young boy capital of the world tens of thousands of little boys and we're talking about little boys this is, this is a terrible age to live in quite apart from those who are slaves about a third of the world doesn't have enough to exist on a daily basis And we are the ones with the answer. We're the only ones with the answer. You see, if we know Jesus, we've got everything that they need. If we know Jesus, we have the creator of the world who's got enough resources for them. We have the deliverer. We have the savior. We have the father. We have the one who is the refuge. We have the one whose heart was broken. We have the one who can lift people up and hide them under his wings. We have the answer for these people. And if we don't go, who will? But one of the great enemies of people going and reaching these people in any other countries, let alone the people in our own country, who are crying because of incest and dying because of shame. One of the reasons that we don't reach out to these people is because of this fear of dying that Johnny was talking about. And it's a demonic lie. I remember sharing about the cross as I like to do. And my one of the people in, in, in church came up to me and said, Jackie, if you talk about the cross anymore, I shall die and I said good (coughs) you're meant to I can remember after my first four years in Hong Kong I went back and somebody was introducing me and you know it was one of these awful introductions you know it wasn't I'd only been in Hong Kong four years so it wasn't about age in those days but you know it was one of these terrible ones that sort of puffs you up you know and it was all about, oh, this wonderful girl who's given up her life, you know, for, and I, it's terrible. So I, I can remember interrupting the, uh, introducer and saying, no, no, you're quite wrong. You're quite wrong. It's cost nothing. It's cost nothing. It's all been my privilege. And then a few months later, I was back in Hong Kong. And I can remember walking through this street, and it had been one more time that I'd had a meeting that nobody came to. That was all my early history. I was always having meetings, which I was the only one at. And and I, I was walking through the street, and I remembered what I'd said in London. And I thought, why on earth did I stand up in church and tell them it cost nothing? This is terrible. This is awful. This costs everything. I haven't seen anybody I've preached to change. I've got no result Why did I say it costs nothing? And then I understood strange thing about the curse. When, When you've made the decision, it's a struggle in the heart, you see. When you've made the decision, you know it costs nothing. But before you've made the decision, you know it costs everything. And this is what Jesus struggled with. And it was a genuine agony. And it's genuine. This is nothing that we can take lightly or say quickly, Oh, dying's easy. Jesus went through this the night before he died. And it was a genuine agony. And he said, Father, is there another way? Father, is there another way? Is there another way? I would rather not. Could this cup pass from me? Could I drink another cup? And when he sweated through this to the point of sweat which was like blood, he then came back and said, yet not what I will, but what you will. And the struggle was over, but briefly, for when he went to find his disciples who did not accompany him in this struggle, he came back and he had to go through the whole thing again. That's where the struggle is. And before you've made the decision, it's a real struggle. And it may take time. And you know it costs everything. And when you've made the decision, you know it costs nothing. And my prayer for the church, my hope and my challenge is that we will learn to choose death voluntarily. It's not a popular teaching. Jesus says in John 10:17, The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life, only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. Jesus says the reason the Father loves him is that he voluntarily lays down his life. Now, he's got authority to do this and authority to take it up again. And I don't know whether you read uh, books on uh, codependency if you're remotely interested in ministering with the poor, you've probably read some. And uh, I, I want to tell you that I believe there's a great amount of truth in these books. I also believe that uh, when the church picks up this teaching in a wrong way, it makes anybody who suffers or who gives up their life, or uh, who's willing to go through a hard time. It gives them a bad name, because codependency now teaches that I define my boundaries. I decide what I can stand. I decide what I need. I decide how much sleep I can cope with. I know my limits, and I live within these limits. And that's exactly what the Bible does not teach. You see, where this teaching is distorted is where I have decided what I need instead of understanding that my Father knows what I need and trusting that He really knows better. If I decide what I need and how much sleep I can cope with, and how many days holiday I must have in order to exist. I am going to be threatened every single time my boundaries are crossed. And this is one of the great problems on the mission field these days, is that we have a huge number of people who arrive on the mission field with predefined boundaries, because they have decided how they can exist. And the shame is that by deciding this, we, as Jonah said, forfeit the grace that could be ours. It's not a popular teaching. People were always coming up to me over the years. And they were saying to me, because they saw that I looked exhausted. They saw that I looked tired. And they were always saying to me, Jackie, you must take a rest. I I want to tell you this. If you go to people that are ministering with the poor, don't say that. There's nothing more exhausting than people who are giving you theoretical advice about holidays when you're tired. And if you are living and working with the poor, you can't walk off the job. It's the people that write about it that can. The people who live with the poor can't. Because the poor are in their hearts and in their homes. And, and we had so many visitors that came to us, mostly men. And they'd say, Jackie, are you, do you think you're supposed to be doing this as a woman? And I'd say, you do it. You stay. You love my people. You love God's people. That's all they need. Don't tell me to take a holiday. My people won't understand me taking a holiday. You see, the poor don't understand that Monday is your day off. They only understand you're not there. This is not a popular teaching. But I'm saying that if we are willing to give up our boundaries, our idea, our preconditions, we will receive everything we need from the Father. We will get more holidays than other people, or at least more Sabbath rest. Because it's what we get from Him that counts. It's not the day off we've demanded. And there's a rest that we enter, which is his Sabbath, which is more refreshing than our allotted holiday. And we are always having people that say, I need time off. And I always want to decide, do you need time off or do you need something in your heart? Because the most exhausting thing is this struggle within. And the struggle is to give up my rights. And it's an exhausting struggle. And the current teaching these days is when this struggle comes upon us, go and take a holiday. I tell you, the people that come back from those holidays are more exhausted. Because they have not faced the struggle. And the struggle is, I will give up my rights. And if we will give up our rights, the struggle is over for a while. (laughs) We're refreshed, like Jesus was, by the angels. Now, it's very simple. Just little things I'm talking about. Just little things. Johnny was talking about noodles for breakfast. Just little things. That's it. We have people who come and we say, if you could bear not to eat McDonald's while you're here. Because we have McDonald's, of course, in Hong Kong. We know you prefer McDonald's. I mean, who really wants noodles for breakfast? But if you could bear to stay with our people and eat their breakfast, they would understand that you love them better than that they would understand you need McDonald's for breakfast. Those are just little things. Just tiny things. If we say, God, I'll work with the poor, but this is my bottom line. And some people have a bottom line. I must have a room to myself. Or some people, as long as I can have orange juice every morning, I can survive. Or some people, just as long as I can have a quiet time by myself, I can survive. You're going to have to give up this right. Or some people, as long as I can have Tuesdays off to write letters, I shall be fine. Or Wednesdays off for hair washing or whatever. We had somebody who came not long ago and she said, God, I think I can survive Hong Kong as long as you give me a good hairdresser. (laughs) You know, because she got used to the Canadian one. But then she had to give that up too. All right, God, okay, okay, I'll give up my right to get a good hairdresser. Of course, she got one when she gave up her right. But that's where the struggle is. And it's understanding that God the Father knows we need rest more than we do. He invented it. He invented days off. He invented holidays. The problem is when we have planned when we must have these things, we're angry when, when the poor intrude. And if you get to work with the poor, they will intrude all the time. This man that I told you about, the one that banged his forehead on the pavement and drew blood, you know a miracle happened to him? One day I met him, and he told me this wonderful story. He said, you sometimes stopped, and you told me about Jesus. And he said, one day there was a typhoon. And in the typhoon, he chose to go into a a, a subway. It was underneath the road. It was a road crossing. And he said, and It's very rainy and it's very windy and a typhoon. So he stayed down there in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights. And he called upon Jesus. And he got off heroin all by himself. Nobody prayed with him. He just called upon Jesus. And when I met him, he's still sleeping in the streets. He told me, I know Jesus now. He's still very strange. And his, his... toe got all septic and it started to uh, ooze pus and he couldn't walk. So uh, I went to see him and found him there. Then I took a couple of friends and we picked him up and we took him to the hospital and went to visit him there. And he stayed there some time while they took off his toes. And then They needed a place for him to live and there was not a place. So the hospital put him in the street without telling me he was discharged. So we had to go find him again. And then he had nowhere to live. My place was full. I'd got you know, about 34 people by that time. And so I looked around for somewhere where he could go. By law in Hong Kong, people with No homes are supposed to have one. But you know, it doesn't quite work like that. And you'll find this with the poor. Even if there are supposed rights, they're very often too poor to know how to receive their rights. That's why the scripture says you uphold the rights of the poor. And so what it meant for us was this. It was getting up at three o'clock in the morning to go down to where he was sleeping. To make sure that we could wake him up. To make sure that somebody could take him into the public toilet and shower him and dress him. To make sure that he was ready enough in time for us then to take him for a cup of tea. And then to, to go with him on a bus to the place where you get cards to say that you exist because he didn't have one. And if you don't have one of those, you nobody gives you a place to live. And then we, this takes several days. And then we take him to another office where people are rude because people are often rude to the poor. And they, this is the housing place. And we go into the housing place, the Hong Kong Housing Authority. And everybody sees me sitting there. And the officers give me a cup of tea and leave him because I look important. And I say to them, you should give him the cup of tea. And when we've done this for several weeks, they give him a small money grant, but still not a place. And with the small money grant, I have to go up and down staircases Finding landlords that will take such a strange man into their home. This takes weeks. It takes months for one man. And even when we found him displaced, you know he's so strange. The people don't really like him living there, and so they kick him out. And so we do it again. And then we do it again. And then we do it again, and finally he got a proper place to live. But then he quarreled with the man that they put him to live with, and so he's out again. Well, anyway, the story with this man has gone on for some years. But he's finally somewhere now. But you see, the poor will spoil our plans. And as far as I can see by reading Mark's Gospel, they spoiled Jesus' plans. You see, if you read Mark's Gospel, you'll see that Jesus planned days off. He planned times with the Father. Times of refreshing. And sometimes he went up mountains and they found him. And he didn't say... This is my time with the Father, I'm not coming. He said, I will come. And you read that he missed meals. He missed sleep. And so he said to his, his disciples, well, we'll go across the other side of the lake. And we'll, we'll have a rest. And when he got to the other side, I have no idea how they knew. But the telephone system must have been wonderful because by the time he got to the other side of the lake, there were the crowds and he ministered to them. This is amazing. Now he must have had his rest at another time. And I'm, when I'm saying that we should give up our rights, I'm not saying that we will then miss out on what we need. The key to this is understanding that we have a Father who is more concerned about what we need than we are, and more accurate, because we think we know what we need. And He made us, so He knows what we need, and He has promised to supply all our needs Christ Jesus and not only ours but enough to give away and so we see that Jesus on other times was asleep in the middle of a storm he got his rest and for some extraordinary reason he was confident enough in his father to sleep in the middle of a storm so he rested in Hebrews 5 Verse 7, it says, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once having been made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. What does it mean, once having been made perfect? Was Jesus not perfect? It's interesting that it says, although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. What is this? I believe that Jesus had been practicing all his life, from very young, What is the suffering? The suffering is simply, Father, your will, not mine. That's the whole key. And he practiced it in little ways. And when he began his ministry and the power of the Spirit was upon him, the enemy came to him and he was tempted in Matthew 4. Three temptations which I believe are current for us Christians today and very relevant. The first temptation was, if you are the Christ, command these stones to become bread. The temptation was to use the power that God had given him and the authority for himself. The second temptation was, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down from this tower. The temptation was to use the power that God gave him for effect. And the third temptation, if you will bow down, I will give you all the kingdoms of this world and their splendor. He could have had all that he could see and I believe that this was a temptation for instant ministry. I was in Taiwan once, and I was speaking to a group of pastors, and I was telling them, when you get involved with the poor, this ministry is the slowest. This is the one that won't look good. And this is what I'm offering you people. The slowest No, the slowest starting. I actually believe that if we will be involved with the poor, this is the quickest way of reaching the world. But it will not bring instant effect. And what most of us in the church want is instant ministry. If I can receive the power of the Holy Spirit, I can instantly do things. Now, if Jesus had to practice for 33 years, why would I think I could do it any quicker? As a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. He practiced throughout his life, giving up his will to the will of the Father, so he was ready for the big one. And for many of us, it's easier to say, I'm going to give up my life for the lost, than it is to die daily, than it is to give up my my right to Wednesdays off. And this is a lot of the problem that we have with Christians. When we say, would you mind doing this Wednesday? I know it's your day off. And they say, no, this is my day off. I shall die without it. And when you've got people who are dying because there's nobody to look after them on Wednesday. They don't understand that this is the Christian's day off. And I will say, give up your day off. Because in giving up your Wednesday, you'll get many more Sabbaths. You won't lose out. And the disciples were always coming to Jesus and saying, Don't go to Jerusalem, you'll die. Or Peter said, no, 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 Lord, you won't die. And Jesus was very rude. It's not a popular thing to say, give up your days off these days. Everything that we're taught is the opposite. Look after yourself. Know your boundaries. And when Peter said to Jesus, no, you'll not die, Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. For he knew that the purpose of him coming was to die. And when he was going towards Jerusalem in Luke 13:32, they said, "Don't go there because Herod's planning to kill you." And he said, "Go and tell that fox, I will drive out demons and heal people today and tomorrow." And on the third day, I will reach my goal. In any case, I must keep going today and tomorrow. For no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. They told him not to go. And I'm always having people saying to me, Jackie, you'll burn out if you go on like this. You see, it's really exhausting keeping your limit. That is what is tiring. That's what makes people burn out. When we are doing the will of God with His fuel, we can't burn out, but we may be exhausted. And there's nothing wrong with being exhausted. Jesus was. Paul was. Paul was shipwrecked. Paul was flogged. Paul was imprisoned. There's nothing wrong with it. In fact, this is Jesus' promise. It's his promise. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ, Jesus will be persecuted. If we haven't come into persecution, maybe we're not living a godly life. This is a normal part of the gospel. You'll be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. You'll be hated by all nations because of me. This is a great blessing from Jesus. He said, if they did that to me, why would they not do that to you? This is part of it. And this is why the gospel in China is so effective. I met this man once. And he's nearly blind. And he told people about Jesus and he was told not to. So they put him in prison. And they put him in a dark place. And it was like a pigsty. No light. For a couple of years. Which is why he is now nearly blind. And he had to uh, live and eat off the floor that he also used for his toilet. When I looked at him, he was smiling. And he was shining. And he said, they made a mistake. He said, they won't do that again to me. They really regret it. Because he taught with Jesus in his prison cell. And although it was dark, he was light. And when he came out of prison, he walked through a village. And before he even opened his mouth to tell people about Jesus, people came to Christ and people were healed. There was something about that man. And he said, they regret. They regret putting me in prison. They said, it's had the opposite effect. There is this man. He doesn't even need to preach well. All he needs to do is stand in a village and because the light of Christ is shining from him and because of course he's forgiven his prison officers. I mean, that's not a hard thing for him to do. He knew that was coming before he came to Christ. His heart is so full of Christ and his eyes cannot see, but he can see and men can see Jesus in him. And whole villages turned to Christ. A young girl I knew, I used to visit her every day and ch- every week in China. She was arrested the year before last. And they gave her a sheet of toilet paper every day. And she was—she didn't know how long she was going to be in prison. And so she thought, in case I forget the scriptures, I'll write out all the scriptures I know. So instead of using the toilet paper, she she... Wrote very tiny on her piece of toilet paper all the scriptures she could think of. And she did this for three months. And then they released her. And she would walk into a Christian gathering. She would open her mouth. And out of her mouth would come all these scriptures. That's all happened. Out of her mouth came scriptures. And people turned to the Lord. And people were healed villages and village leaders and village communist leaders turned to christ because scriptures were pouring from her mouth that's all she did just a weak little teenager who used her toilet paper for christ nothing else she has to boast of except the christ the cross of our lord jesus christ And she knows the power of His resurrection because she shared the fellowship of His suffering, becoming like Him in death. There is no power without weakness. And many of us in the church these days want it a quicker way. And I can remember one of these many people that used to visit us. And you know, For our first 15 years, we always looked awful. We were tired. People had run away. All the miracles that had happened looked as if they'd got spoiled. Until I began to understand something. We don't see the result of the gospel stories, do we? They just end. It says the man was healed, or it says the man sore, or it says the woman's back was straightened. We don't know what happened the next day. We don't know. They just finished there. It's us that want to complete the story. But I tell you, with the poor, it looks the opposite most of the time. I saw people come to Christ, this great miracle, and I thought, good, now all I have to do is to walk into drug dens, put my hands on people. And they'll all be changed, you know. And I've got the secret. We pray in tongues and say in the name of Jesus. Walk into drug dens and everybody's miraculously delivered. And sometimes it almost looks like that. And the first man that it happened to came a couple of weeks later and he said to me, Jackie, I was in the opium den last night. And somebody offered me free opium and I really wanted to, to take it. And I thought, what are you doing in an opium den? You've just come to Christ. And he said, I prayed for strength not to take opium. And I knelt down on the platform and I sang them a very appropriate song for an opium den, which is give me oil in my lamp. And then he said, praise God. And I said, no, this is not praise God at all. This is very foolish. You can't go into opium dens and pray for strength not to take opium. You're, you're a new person in Christ. You shouldn't be in an opium den. And he said, I live there. And I realized that I had expected him in the moment that he came to Christ. All his problems were over. I didn't expect that of myself. I had a very double standard. And that was why I began to take people into my house, because I couldn't find another place for them to go. And one day, one of these many, night, knocks on the door from the police. And one night, the policeman said, Jackie, I think I've got one of your men. And he was queuing up at a lorry for an injection. And I said, oh, no, 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 no. He couldn't have been queuing up at a lorry for an injection. I'm sure he was preaching the gospel. I was very naive. You see, he was a new man in Christ, and he prophesied last night. Why would he queue up for an injection? But he was. And he was a new man in Christ. And he prophesied. But you see, he was still working through other things. And I began to see, so am I. But when the world or when the church came to see us, it didn't look like that. It looked as if this converted man was still dirty still swearing, still had long toenails. It looked as if our addicts who had come off drugs miraculously, one minute praised God and the next minute ran away. And we had ten people in our house. And then there were eight. And then there were six. And then there were four. And then there were two. And we, they'd all run away. And then you got one. And he stayed for three months. And you thought, oh, there's my next leader. Listen. Listen. If you work with the poor, you'll do this. But try not to. Try not to look at one of your initial converts and put leadership on him. Don't. They all, they all disappoint you. And you must not put the future of your ministry on him. It's too hard. I saw this happen so many times. And I thought, well, this one is going to be all right. And then somebody else would come into the house, and they'd both run away. And it looked as if I was going backwards most of the time. And I looked at my friends in England, and I looked at my friends in the States, and they'd got cell groups that were multiplying. They'd got Bible study groups that were increasing. They could count their successes. Their people could fill in the blanks in their books. Our people couldn't read the books. My friends' meetings were getting bigger. Our people forgot it was Wednesday. It is so with the poor. And if you do this to satisfy your successful ministry, you'll be disappointed. I told you I shared this with the Taiwanese pastor. I said, you will look as if you're going backwards. Everybody else's ministry will look as if it's flourishing. And the very ones that you brought to Christ have disappointed you. I said, that's it. He said, I've never heard this ministry before. I've never heard about this. How come we've not heard of this? We hear about church growth. I said, have you not heard of Jesus? Who, when he died, had nothing to show for his ministry. A few women and 11 men in disarray until the breath of the Holy Spirit brought a dead Jesus to life. And in the twinkling of an eye, it was all changed. Ministry with the poor is like this. You will look as if you're going slower than everyone. You will look as if you're going backwards. There's nothing to show except tiredness and grief. And yet suddenly for us, I don't know how it happened, but suddenly some stayed and grew up a bit and then more. And then suddenly, I don't know how it happened, but round about this time I met Gary. He didn't, he hadn't seen all our early real tired years. And suddenly there were more people and more people and suddenly we had or 600 that you could see on a Sunday, suddenly in our addicts meetings, we had people queuing up to meet Jesus, and people from other countries would come, now it was different, and they would look, and one of them saw our addicts meetings, which we have every week, and every week we see probably between 2 to 20 people saved, filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues and ready to get off drugs at least between 2 to 20 every week. We can't stop them coming. And the visitors come and they say, Jackie, have you thought of exporting this model? Because they only see that meeting. They think somehow this formula of praying in tongues and preaching is a quick one. And I've said, Wow, no, I've not thought of exporting this model. Uh, but I have thought we should export the cross. Because what you're seeing is unfair. You see people coming through the door, and all our addicts come to Christ within five minutes now. They come in through the door, they know Christ within five minutes. This is normal. We go out to meet street sleepers. Many of them come to know Christ within five minutes. But it's unfair, you see, because it looks as if it's five minutes. But it's actually 30 years. And when you work with the poor, it's that slow. It looks as if you're losing. And then everything else comes in unfairly. And we get many, many for free now. I mean for free. Where we've not labored. People come in and people come up to me and they say, Jackie, I saw your video. People in Canada have no idea what they're talking about. Because I've not made a video. But you see, what happened was they were going to pull the World city down a few years ago. So the whole world took videos of the walled city. And we got to be in them all because we were just part of what was happening. So all these secular people who do it better came and took videos of what Jesus was doing in the walled city. And we got to be in them all. And I got letters from people in Australia and Canada and England, and they said, I saw your video, and while I was watching it, I got healed. Or my brother came off drugs while he was watching your video, and I think, God, we got that one for free. That's nothing to do with us, you know. But that's what it is. If you minister to one poor man and lose your life and get exhausted and maybe even die in obscurity. The fame of Jesus goes a long way. It might even go to the four corners of the earth if we waste our life on one poor man. That's it. That's all. And we will waste our life on him whether he comes to Christ or not because that's how they come to Christ. I want to give a word about discernment. Jesus was sure of what he came into the world to do. And it also says that he was able to humble himself and wash his disciples' feet because he knew from where he came and to where he was going. His security was in the Father. Now, for those of us that work with the poor, it's very important that our security is in the Father. You see, people look at our poor and they say, Oh, Jackie, that must really satisfy you seeing all these people changed. And I say, No, you're wrong. I was satisfied before. This is just the extra bit when I get to see what I knew he could do. But I was satisfied anyway. I'm satisfied in Him. I don't need to do this to satisfy me. I don't need to do this to feel useful. My satisfaction is in knowing Him and being loved by Him. That's it. That's it. And so I, I, this is a word that's really important. But the reason that Jesus could lay down his life was that he was sure of the Father and trusted him. And we need to be sure of this. Otherwise, it's not laying down our life at all. It's called killing ourselves. And that's not helpful to anyone. And it's not helpful to the gospel. Laying down our life is saying, Father, your will, not mine. And in the doing of this, Father, your will, not mine, we expect him to reveal his will. So, Lord, we ask now that you will, in mercy, give us a revelation of your heart for us, of your love for us, of your provision for us, of your knowledge of us, That you do understand our needs, that you care about our rest, that you care about our provision. Father, we, we want to trust you in this. And many of us admit, Father, that we are frightened because we think we know how we can function. We think we know. And we've heard many things about burnout. And we don't want to burn out. So we ask, Lord, that you come with revelation that we might trust you in your will for our lives. And be willing to give up what we thought we could cope with.
0: Thank you so much for joining us today. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress, brought to you by the National Prayer Chapel in Woodbridge, Virginia. Write to us at the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195, or visit us online at nationalprayerchapel.com. God bless you. We love you. Said.